The following audio is from Morningstar Baptist Church in Dayton, Ohio. For more information about Morningstar, visit morningstardayton.org. Once again, good morning. I'm so glad that you're here. And if you've been with us over the last several weeks, we just finished a series that we called The Mountain, where we walk through the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew chapter 7. And this week we're going to actually back up just a little bit. So we're actually going to be in Matthew chapter 4. So hopefully you brought your Bibles with you this morning. If not, you can pull it up on your phone. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4. And the, the background of this is in chapter 3, uh, Jesus is, he, he's starting his ministry. He gets baptized by John the Baptist. And I don't know if you remember that passage. But uh, when John the Baptist, when he baptizes Jesus, the, the people around him heard the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. And then it says that the, the glory of God came and descended from heaven like a dove. So it was quite the, the moment in time where Jesus got baptized. And then right after that, he, he fasted for 40 days and was led into this, the wilderness um, where he was tempted by Satan. And after that is where we pick up our passage here in Matthew chapter 4. Look at verse 17. It says, from then on, so this is after, after he's been baptized, after he was, was in the wilderness and was tempted. It says, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And I, I love that because we went to camp on Thursday night where the teenagers were at and the camp speaker was using that word repent. I love that. It's a churchy word. I get it. But without repentance, there is no salvation. Without us saying, you know what, I, here's the way I'm going. Here's, here's who I am and my sin and my brokenness. Without us going, hey, this is not right. When the Holy Spirit convicts us, we turn away from that. We don't just change our mind. Well, I'll try something else. It's a turning away from that and going towards Jesus, wanting more of Jesus. And that's what Jesus starts preaching. Repent. You got to turn away from that. Like I'm calling you to a new life. You got to turn away from your old one. And then he goes to verse 18. And it says, as he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the sea since they were fishermen. Verse 19 says, follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, and they were mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. And we've looked at this passage before from the aspect of what it means like to abandon everything. And follow Jesus, but we're going to focus on a different part of that passage here this morning. And talking about this idea of, of being a, a disciple. When I, when I, don't say it out loud, just think about this. When I say the word Christian, what comes to your mind? Like when I just said that word Christian, what's the first thing that popped in your mind? What are you, what are you envisioning? What do you see? What are you imagining when you hear that word Christian? Because we call ourselves Christians, Right? So we probably should hopefully know what that means. But what, what do you think of? Do you think of like somebody like the suit and tie and, like, like and, and going to church? Or what, what do you think about? I mean, there's, let me, let me, let's, let's prime the pump a little bit. Here's the deal. Let me start with the easier ones. Okay. Don't say it out loud because I don't want anybody to be embarrassed this morning. All right? But when I say the word liberal, what do you think of? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? All right. A lot of laughter. There's a snort too. All right. So, all right. That's great. Okay. What about if I say conservative? Right? What comes to your mind? Don't cheer. All right, so I heard somebody go, yeah. All right, so what comes to your mind when you say Republican? All right, that's different. Republican. What comes to your mind when you say Democrat? 
What comes to your mind when we say the word vegetarian? In Texas, we call them bad hunters, but that's okay. Um, that's all right. But what do you think? I mean, what do you think of? You know what? We all have an image that comes to our mind when I say these words, don't we? Right? What about if I say Ohio State fan? What do you think of when I say Ohio State fan? Good person, right? Right? Or if I say Michigan fan, right? Michigan, Ohio State. You know who you're thinking about. It's okay, right? What if I say Texan? Some of you guys are thinking about your crazy pastor. Some of you, I see some hands raised because we got some recent converts from Texas, right? It's awesome. Um, when I met Mandy for the first time in Springfield, Missouri at college, and we were introducing ourselves, hey, here's where I'm from, and I told her I'm from Texas. Immediately she looked down to see if I was wearing cowboy boots. First thing, and she'll tell you, that's the first thing she looked at because she grew up here in Ohio and apparently there's a stereotype that everybody from Texas wears cowboy boots and belt buckles. I own both, but I, weren't, I wasn't wearing them that day, okay? So, but it was, when, I say tech, when I say New Yorker, what comes to mind? What do you think of when you say the word New Yorker? Okay, how about this? Best superhero movie franchise. Immediately, some of you guys went to Marvel, right? The rest of you who don't love Jesus went to D.C., okay, right? Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. That's okay. It's all right. But when we say things, we automatically have an idea of what that is. So let's go back to our original question. Again, think about it. What, what, do you, what comes to mind when you use the word or you think of the word Christian? See, if you were to walk down the street right now, I guarantee you, like everybody here jogs, and it makes me really convicted because I don't jog. And so um, when I drive down Centerville, and if you left right now, there'll be people jogging or walking their dog somewhere, and you can go up to them right now and ask them, hey, are you a Christian? And since we're kind of in the little upper Midwest, chances are when you ask them, are you a Christian, they're gonna say, well, yeah, of course I am. But they really don't have any idea what it means. And you'll ask some, if you ask the same question, you might get some people who say, well, what are you talking about? Some people might say, yes, but I'm not like, and they want to quantify it with who they're not like. You'll get some that say, well, no, I'm, I'm really not. And some of you this morning hopefully would say at some point you became a Christian. There was a point in your life where you gave your life to Jesus Christ. Some of you, maybe you just prayed a prayer or walked an aisle or got baptized. Some of you would say, well, I've been a Christian since I was born. And that one kills me because, no, you haven't, <laughs> Okay. And I've talked to people all over the country, and I like to hear people's stories. I'm like, hey, tell me about when you got saved. Tell me about that moment where, and, and I, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to somebody like, well, I was born and raised a Christian. No, you're not born a Christian. The Bible makes it very clear. We're born separated from God. You're not born a Christian. You're born again to be a Christian, but you're not born a Christian. And so, listen, there, there's that, give me that moment. And some of you this morning, maybe you were tricked into coming to church this morning, all right? Maybe somebody bribed you with a really good lunch. Maybe some of you kids, your parents threatened you with bodily harm if you didn't get out of bed to come to church, and maybe that's why you're here. Uh, but some of you would even say this morning, no, you know, honestly, I'm not. I, I know for sure I'm not. I want to tell you I'm glad you're here. Because I want to share something very interesting with you, something that maybe some of you have never heard before, but it's really interesting that the very first followers of Jesus did not call themselves Christians. Did you know that? When Jesus was here and he died and they buried him and he rose again and the church was getting going and he was talking to all these disciples and even when he went back to heaven, do you realize that church did not call themselves Christians? Christians was actually a slang term. It was a derogatory put down. It was a slam 
against people who were followers of Christ. They did not call themselves Christian. It was, it was actually from an outside group who called, it, called these guys Christians to make fun of them. Acts eleven twenty six tells us that a group of believers at Antioch were, were, were the ones who were first called Christians. The term really, what it meant was, that made it slang, it was calling you a little Jesus. Oh, you're just a little Jesus walking around, aren't you? You just want to be like that guy, that, that, that Nazarene right, that they, they crucified. You're just a little Jesus. That's, that's how they said it. That's what that term meant. It means that you're a little Jesus. And, but what did they call themselves? They didn't call themselves Christians. You know what they called themselves? Disciples. They called themselves disciples. They referred to themselves. So if we were to transport ourselves back to first century Israel, and run into some of these, these guys, these, these men and women in these churches, they would say, hey, we're disciples. That's what they would say. They would not say we're Christians. They would say we're disciples of Jesus. You know the word Christians is actually only used three times in the whole New Testament. Three times, that's it. One right there in Acts eleven twenty six, where it says they were first called Christians at Antioch. The next time is in Acts 26, 28, where the apostle Paul was standing before King Agrippa, and he was sharing his faith. He was speaking the gospel to King Agrippa. And at the end, I don't know if you remember the end of the sentence, King Agrippa looks at Paul and he says, oh, Paul, you almost got me. You almost persuaded me to become one of you little Jesus people. It was a put down. He said, you almost persuaded me to be a Christian. He used the slang, the put down term. That's the second time it appears. The third time is in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16, where Peter encourages those who are being persecuted for being little Jesuses. That's the only three times the word Christian even appears in the New Testament. The word disciple appears over 269 times in the New Testament. Okay, so what I'm not saying this morning is stop calling yourself a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying leave, don't leave, oh, I can't use that word anymore. That's not what we're saying. It was a slang term that, to make fun of them, and what they did was they embraced it. They're like, yeah, that's exactly who we are. We want to be a little Jesus. We want to be Jesus-like. We want to be these little Jesus running around and sharing our faith. It was a badge of honor to them. But today, let's be very honest today in, in, in this room, is that the word Christian has really become very watered down in our nation, in our world. Because everybody labels themselves a Christian now. Like you can run into anyone who claims they're a Christian. You can run into somebody and say, well, I went to mass once and I was, I was blessed by a priest, so I'm a Christian. You can run into somebody who says, well, I was confirmed as a child. I went through the confirmation classes and, and they had this little graduation ceremony, so I'm a Christian. You have some people who say, well, I was christened as a baby, so I'm a Christian. Or I was baptized as an infant or a child or a teenager, so I'm a Christian. This one kills me. Well, I sent money to a preacher once and he told me that I'm blessed and I can go to heaven, so I'm a Christian. I prayed a prayer, I sang a song, I wore a special garment, I paid a certain amount of money. I know John 3, 16, by heart, I got, I'm a Christian. I know Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, I'm a Christian. I know every hymn in the hymnal, so I'm a Christian. I know all three chords to every worship song, I'm a Christian, right? The music people get that, it's okay. But the meaning of the word disciple is so much clearer. In fact, it's fearfully clearer about what you actually become when you choose to believe in Jesus. Look at verse 17 again. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he, look in verse 19, he looks at these guys and he says, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. 
want you to understand a little background of this. Here's the deal. So you're like, I don't know if you're like me, but if you read this passage, you're like, okay, so this strange guy walks down this, the shore of Galilee, looks at these grown men, says, follow me, and they abandon everything to go follow. Like, it doesn't make any sense. We well, got to understand a little bit of the context and the culture here. Jewish boys at this time, around the age of five or six, would go to school to learn the Old Testament. The first five books of the Old Testament is called the Torah. So we'll just call it Torah school, okay? They all went and learned it. They learned Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it was called Bet's Sefer from the age of about 6 to 12. And then they went, if they, if they did really good and they showed a lot of promise, they would move on at the age of 10 to 12 and go to Bet Medrish, where they would go a little deeper and learn even more about the Old Testament. And then if they were really exceptional, about the age of 16, 17, sometimes maybe even 15 if they were really good, they would go to something called Bet Talmud. And here's what that was. That's where they went and they would find a rabbi. They would find a rabbi and they would go and sit at the feet of and a rabbi just means teacher. They would go find a teacher somewhere and they would go sit down at his feet. And that was their application to join their little group. And so if I'm a rabbi and I'm sitting here and somebody comes and sits at my feet while I'm teaching, when I'm done teaching, I'm going to talk to that young man and I'm going to grill him on a bunch of questions. I'm going to ask him every question I can think of about the Old Testament, about the law, about all these other things. And if if I think they're smart enough and good enough to join my group, then I will invite them to come and follow me. I will invite them to come be a part of my group. Most young men during this time, when they were about the age of 10, would just go back home to dad and learn the family business. And that's where Peter, James, John, and Andrew are. They went through, they learned the first five books of the Old Testament, but they went back to become fishermen. But if you followed a rabbi, what would happen is you would follow your rabbi around and you would learn everything about them. If your rabbi ate with his right hand, but you were left-handed, you would eat with your right hand. If your rabbi woke up at 4.30 every morning to go to the bathroom, you woke up at 4.30 every morning to go to the bathroom. If your rabbi went to bed at 6 o'clock at night with the sun still up, you went to bed at 6 o'clock at night. You learned to talk like your rabbi. You learned to speak, engage, how to hang out, how to converse, how to, how to, how to fit in in certain groups. You did everything like your rabbi. In fact, the highest compliment you could pay to one of these young men following a rabbi during that time was to say this phrase to them, the dust of your rabbi is all over you. Basically, that was like saying that everything your rabbi steps in sprays all over you, okay? Remember, they weren't walking on concrete and asphalt roads. They were walk, walking on brick paved roads or stone paved roads, most of the time dirt roads, and they wore sandals. And so when they were walking, they would stir up dust and if you were walking close enough behind them, that dust would get on you. So this phrase of the dust of your rabbi is all over you is really, it's a, it's a word picture. You're following your rabbi so closely that their dust is covering you. In other words, you're just like your rabbi. You're just like him. You're getting covered with it. So back to Matthew 4. Here comes Jesus who knows the Torah so well that when he was 12, he was in the temple, you remember the story, and he was correcting the grown men about their theology. He was correcting these men about uh, what they believed. People are constantly amazed at his authority. In fact, Matthew chapter seven, where we finished up our Sermon on the Mount series, verse 29, said that he spoke with authority unlike anybody who was speaking at the time. Luke chapter 20, we see all these religious leaders asking Jesus, who gave you this authority? Who gave you this power? Because it's just it, because he's a son of God, it was just coming out of him. Like when he spoke, it just couldn't help but people be drawn to him. And these guys were going, who gave you that? Like, this isn't right. Somebody had to give you that. You had to learn that from somewhere. Who gave that to you? They just couldn't understand. 
And then in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, after he calls his disciples, look at it. Jesus was going all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So not only was this authority just pouring out of him, he had power. So we have to understand that, that as this is just before this, Jesus was baptized and God spoke and everybody heard it and, and the, the glory of God came and descended above him. And so here's Jesus, this new rabbi, and he's exploding with power and authority. And he chooses, he walks down the Sea of Galilee and he points to some ordinary guys who washed out of Torah school. And he points to them and says, you, I want you to follow me. You, I want you to follow me. You and you. And if, so, of course, these guys are going to follow him because this is a rabbi seeking them out, which was unheard of, especially for the rabbi to seek out fishermen because this is the B team, right? This is not the rock star team. And when I was growing up in, in, in Texas in middle school in seventh and eighth grade, we had a, a, a football A team and a football B team and a basketball A team and a basketball B team. You knew which team you were on. You know what I'm saying? Like if you were really skilled and really big and built and you were one of those guys in seventh grade who was already growing a beard, you were on the A-team, right? I was not so lucky, okay? But he chooses the B-team. He chooses a bunch of fishermen. And here's, I love this. He skipped over all the all-stars, all the new up-and-comers from the other, other schools that were around and went straight for the fishermen. So of course they wanted to follow him. They wanted to follow this rabbi who had chosen them. He chose them to follow him, to become like him, to know God like he knew God, to do what he did and be filled with his power. So three things from this passage I want to pull out because I want us to understand this this morning. The first thing is this. Jesus doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. If you mark in your Bible, if you underline your Bible right there in the margin where it says that he went to the fishermen, just write the word willing. Because Jesus doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. Here's what I love. John MacArthur says it this way. He says, in choosing his disciples, Jesus skipped all the whys of the day. Whys, W-H-Y, like why you would pick somebody. Here's what he says. The great scholars were in Egypt. The great library was in Alexandria. The great philosophers were in Athens. The powerful were in Rome. He passed over Herodotus, the historian, Socrates, the great thinker, and Julius Caesar, the great ruler. And he chose men to be his disciples so ordinary, it was comical. Not one single rabbi, not one single teacher, no religious experts, not even a Pharisee. Half of them were fishermen, one was a tax collector, and Simon the Zealot was a troublemaker by trade. Look it up, read about him, it's pretty interesting. I love that quote. Jesus skipped over all the why, why you would choose someone, and he went straight for the ordinary. So ordinary, it was funny. He chose this group because his work would not come from their abilities, but would come from what he would do through them. Jesus chose these guys because, not because of the, 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 his work that would come from their abilities, but from what he would do through them. What does that mean? It means Jesus didn't choose you because you're awesome. <laughs> He wants to make you awesome for him because he chose you. So the question is not how able are you. The question is and always has been how available are you. The question is not how able or how talented or how amazing you are. The question is how available are you. Have you really surrendered yourself to God enough to say, God, I'm going to stop making excuses. 
I'm going to stop looking into my family. I'm going to stop looking into my marriage. I'm going to stop looking into my ministry. I'm going to stop looking into my workplace. I'm going to stop looking into my community and asking, what can John do? And instead, I'm going to look into my marriage, and I'm going to look into my family. I'm going to look into my community. I'm going to look into my street and my neighborhood, and I'm going to say, what can Jesus do? Because I can't do anything. I have no power. I've got nothing. So I need to stop looking at every situation and being discouraged by it because I look at it and go, well, I can't really do anything. I can't really fix my marriage. I can't really fix my kids. I can't really fix my neighborhood. I can't really fix my job. But I can start looking at all those areas and go, but what can Jesus do? He, doesn't, he chose, but he doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. And John, Jesus says in John chapter 15, in verse 16, you don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll read it for you. John chapter 15 in verse 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go out and produce fruit. If you mark in your Bible, I want you to put a box around that phrase, produce fruit. And that your fruit should remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. And then verse 17, he finishes it up by saying, This is what I command you love one another. And earlier he says, I command you to love one another as I have loved you. Well, he loved us enough to go to the cross to die for us, and he commands us to love others enough to tell them about that story. Does that make sense? And he says, I command you, I want you, I point you that you go out and bear fruit. Bear fruit means that you're going to win other people to Jesus. That's what it means. You're going to reproduce in others what Jesus has done in you. So here's the deal. So when you lack confidence in yourself, you should, you should put your confidence in Jesus' promises to you. Because even if you fail, even if I fail, the purposes of Jesus will never fail. So if I'm lacking confidence, if I'm losing confidence to talk to my neighbor, if I'm losing confidence to talk to my family member, if I'm losing confidence to do anything, one, i got to quit looking at myself for confidence, and I need to put my confidence in Jesus who said he's going to do it through me. Here's where our confidence fails. A lot of times we talk about we lost our confidence or we lost our faith in Jesus, but it's really not our faith in Jesus that we've lost. What we've really lost is our faith that Jesus would do through us what he said he would do. When I'm nervous or I'm scared and it keeps me from sharing my faith, keeps me from spreading the gospel, I haven't lost my faith in Jesus. I've lost my faith that Jesus is going to do through me what he said he was going to do. A great example of this is Matthew chapter 14, just a few chapters from here, where the disciples are in the boat and it's stormy, but Jesus isn't with them. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes walking on the water. And Peter says, Jesus, if it's you, invite me to step out of the boat and come to you. And Jesus says, come on. And Peter starts walking on the water, and everything is awesome without busting into the Lego movie song, right? So everything is awesome. And then all of a sudden, he starts seeing the wind, and he starts seeing the waves, and he starts to sink. And we look at that, and we go, aha, Peter lost his faith in Jesus. No, he didn't. Because Peter still saw Jesus walking on the water, and Peter calls out to Jesus to save him. Peter didn't lose his faith in Jesus. Peter lost his faith that Jesus could make him walk on water. There's a big difference. Where your confidence, confidence usually falters is not in the character of Jesus. It's in the promise of Jesus to do through you what he said he's going to do. You're fully convinced, and I'm fully convinced, that if Jesus was married to my spouse, if Jesus was married to your spouse, he would be the greatest spouse in the world, right? We're fully convinced that if Jesus was raising our kids, he wouldn't make any mistakes. He'd be awesome. We're fully convinced that if Jesus was working at our workplace, he wouldn't have any trouble spreading the good news and the gospel. But that's not what Jesus promised. 
Jesus promised to do that through you and through me. That's where our confidence usually lags. What you need to remember is faithful is he who calls you who also will do it. That he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. We see in Philippians 1.6 that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, in verse 12, Paul's talking to a young preacher. And he says this, he says, uh, and that is why I suffer these things, for I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. God doesn't choose the best. He chooses the available and the willing. Second thing this morning is this. Our primary calling is to be with Jesus. Our primary calling is to be with Jesus. Go back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. Two words, follow me. Draw a box around it. Underline it. In our English, that's two words, follow me. But in the Greek, it's three words. It's dute apesoma. Don't ask me to say it again, okay? Just trust me. Dute apasama. And what it means is, it means it literally means this. Here, behind me. Come here, follow me. And it, it, here is actually like an exclamation. It's like, hey, you, come here. I want you to follow me. I want you to get behind me and go where I go. And I love that. And he didn't tell them where they're going. You notice that? He just said, follow me. He didn't tell them where they're going or what assignment that they would have because his primary call on you and on me is not to do something. It's to become like him. A lot of times we think we gotta do, do, do to please God. And Jesus says, follow me. And then I'll make you be fishers of men. But the command is to follow him, to be with him. So God's plan for your life is not for you to do something. His plan is for you to become like Jesus. But to become like him, you got to know him. And to know him, you got to spend time with him. And to spend time with him means that you soak in every single word that comes out of his mouth, to be covered in the dust of our rabbi. And we offer a lot of ways to get involved with that here at Morningstar. We've got weekly messages like you're sitting through right now. We've got small groups that are going to start up here in about a really short couple of months. We've got mentoring opportunities. We've got Bible studies. And if you're serious about being his disciples, then you're going to want to take advantage of these. And not just coming to hear me talk once a week, because promise me, I promise you, it's going to drive you crazy, okay? There's so many ways to, be, to soak in what he's saying. You're going, to get, you're going to want to be getting in the word every single day on your own. You're going to be memorizing scripture. You're going to saturate yourself with the word. Do you want the dust of the rabbi all over you? Here's what sometimes I hear. People go to different churches like, well, I don't like that church because I'm not being fed by the pastor. You really know it's your job to feed yourself, right? How many of you guys call your mom and dad at home and tell them to come over and feed you, spoon feed you, right? Look, if, if you're just, look, you can come in and I'm going to feed. I'm going I'm to feed the sheep. I'm going I'm to preach the word of God. But if that's all you're relying on, that's why you're starving spiritually. Not because we're not feeding, because you're not in it. You're not reading it. My job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. My job is to train you to go out and spread the gospel. It's all of our jobs to be covered in the dust of our rabbi, to soak in every word that Jesus says. And if we're not in this, you won't know what he says. Do you want the dust of the rabbi all over you? Then you're going to have to take, have this word saturating you inside and out 
until it dominates all of your thinking and all of your behavior, until you think it, you talk it, you quote it. Let me, get you, let me hit you with this one. You cannot know Jesus any more than you know this. Do you know that? You cannot know Jesus any more than you know the word of God. That's why we have some believers who've been saved 20, 30, 40 years of their life and they're still baby Christians because they don't know much about Jesus because they really don't get into this. You can't know Jesus any more than you know his word. Do you want the dust of the rabbi all over you? Then learn his word and you gotta be with him. The third and last thing this morning is this. Jesus commands us. Jesus commands us to reproduce spiritually. Jesus commands us to reproduce spiritually. Look in verse 19 again of Matthew chapter four. He says, follow me. He told them, and I will make you fish for people. Just like Jesus is a fisher of men, his disciples would become fishers of men. To be a disciple, he commands us to make disciples. This is an essential part of being a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. Here's what Jesus did not say. Jesus didn't say, follow me and I'll make you a church member. Jesus did not say, follow me and I'll make you successful. He did not say, follow me and I will give you your best life now. He did not say, follow me and I'll make you comfortable. In fact, he says the opposite. Later on he says, if you follow me, there's gonna be some hard times. You're gonna have some trouble. He didn't say, follow me and I'll make you famous. He didn't say, follow me and I'll make you a nice comfy building to meet in. He didn't say, follow me and I'll give you all your preferences and exactly how you want everything. He didn't say any of that. He said, follow me and I'll give you an identity and a purpose and that's to go fishing, to fish for people. And it's not meant for something for just a few of us to do. It's something that according to Jesus, we all do. In fact, Jesus says, if this is not part of what you do, you're not my disciple. Jesus says, if this is not part of what you do, you're not my disciple. And you might be this morning going, oh, man, that's not what Jesus said. Come on, that's a little hard. Okay, go to John 15. In fact, I encourage you to read the whole chapter of John 15, but here's what he says in John 15, verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit, if you mark in your Bible, I want to mark this, and prove to be my disciples. Now be very careful. It doesn't mean we have to make disciples to be saved. That's not, we don't work for our salvation. But you want proof of your salvation? Where's the fruit? Where's the fruit? That hurts a little bit. That hurts me a little bit. Jesus says, my Father is glorified in this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Verse 9 says, as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. And if you keep my commands, now, if you read the context of that, the commands of Jesus is to love God and love people. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love Verse 12, this is my command, love one another as I have loved you. Now look, he's saying this, and not too long from there, he goes to the cross. 
He says, love people like I love you. And by the way, I'm loving you. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to give my life for your salvation, for your eternal life. So you then love people enough to share that story with them. Does that make sense? Then in verse 16, he says this, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you that you should go out and produce fruit. There's that phrase again. We just looked at it earlier. And that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask my father in my name, he will give it to you. This is what I command you, love one another. How are you going to prove that you're his disciple? You're going to bear fruit spiritually. You're going to reproduce spiritually. Which means if you're his disciples, this is going to be a part of your life. And if you're not reproducing spiritually, you have a good reason to go, okay, am I really a follower of Jesus? Because Jesus said, my disciples are going to produce fruit. My disciples, there's going to be evidence of that. The last thing Jesus said before he left this earth was Matthew 28, 19, where he says, go into all the world and make disciples. Baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Ghost, and teaching them to observe whatsoever I've commanded you. So in the Greek, let me get a little nerdy on you this morning. The word go, baptize, and teach, they're all participles. They're not the main verb in that text in the Greek. The center of all the going and baptizing and teaching is found in the one verb in there, which is make disciples. Which means that in everything else we do as a church and everything we do as a follower of Christ, the core of what we do is make disciples. And when we're making disciples, the baptism comes part of it. When we're making disciples, the teaching comes along part of it. When we're making disciples, we're naturally going. But the key verb there is make disciples. Yes, we want to show love and kindness and meet the needs wherever we see them. We want to help the homeless, the orphan, the underprivileged, the unwed mother. But the core of all of that as we help them is teaching them about Jesus. Some of you are moved by the needs of the world, and that is awesome. You're moved by the needs of people all around you. But the greatest need in the world is the need of people to hear about salvation of Jesus. I can take a homeless man off the street and I can give him a brand new home, a nice vehicle. I can give him a job where he's making eighty, ninety thousand dollars $90,000 a year. I can give him a pension plan. I can give him insurance. I can give him all those things. And he might live 30, 40, 50, 60 more years. But if he dies in his sin, he's going to spend eternity separated from Jesus forever. Separated from God forever in a place called hell. So here's the deal. Did I really help him? Or as I'm helping him, I share the good news with him, and I share the gospel with him, and I speak about hope and forgiveness and new life and eternal life. That's where real help and that's where real relief of suffering comes in. Some of you are moved by the suffering of the refugee and the plight of people all over the world, and that's amazing. But the greatest of all suffering is eternal suffering, which people who are outside of Jesus experience, which means, yes, give your life to meet needs. We're called to do that. Give your life to relieve suffering. But get this, church, listen, lean in. But as a disciple of Jesus, know that the greatest needs you can meet and the greatest suffering you can relieve is the need of people to hear about Jesus and experience the salvation of Jesus. So in all you do, make sure the controlling verb of your life and my life is make disciples. Jesus summarized his ministry in Luke 19 by saying this, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. So if I'm being covered in the dust of my rabbi, if I'm following Jesus as a disciple, shouldn't that be the summary of my life too? 
that I came to seek and to save that which is lost and point them towards the Savior. God's plan for Centerville, Ohio and the surrounding area are men and women. His plan is not something. God's plan is someone. And it's you. And it's me. We want to see everyone at Morningstar who claims to be a disciple of Jesus by the grace of God become a reproducing Christian. We want to commit right now, this weekend, to doing this very thing. And I know it's intimidating and it's scary, but don't let it intimidate you because, remember, Jesus doesn't call the, the, the best. He calls the willing, and it's him that's doing it through us. Disciple-making is simply teaching somebody else to follow Jesus. And you're like, I don't understand what that means. Then take this. Here's what it is. It's opening your life up and inviting other people in and sharing with them Jesus. So most important thing today, what I want you to walk away with today is this. Here's the deal. We're called to be disciples, not Christians. And if we're disciples, then our job is to make disciples. So who's your one? Who's your one? Who is it that you've been praying for to God lay on your heart to say, I'm going to do everything I can to show them the Savior. Who is it? If you don't have one, start praying for one. I'm going to tell you this, they're all around you. They're everywhere. It's our job to seek and to save that which is lost, to share with them Jesus. I know you can't control the outcome. I know you can't make someone become a believer. I'm not putting that on you, but I'm saying this. Will you commit to God and say, God, will you show me one person that I'm supposed to reproduce myself in spiritually, that I'm supposed to lead to you or at least show them you? Because what if each believer in our building right now, what if, what if every small group this fall won one person? What would that do to this area? What would that do for our church? What would that do for the kingdom? Just do one. So the question is this, are you a disciple? Maybe you've never understood that until now, but are you actually a disciple or are you just a Christian? Have you committed to follow Jesus? Do you understand that it, who it is that's called you? He didn't just give insights, new insights. He, he spoke and the wind and waves obeyed him. He commanded demons and they fled. He spoke to diseases and they were healed. He talked to people in graves and they walked out of the graves. But to, by him all things exist. By his blood they were redeemed. For his glory they were created. According to his purpose they are progressing. He has no rival. He has no equal. If Jesus is who he says he is, doesn't he deserve our total abandonment? If Jesus is who he says he is, the Savior of the world, the Messiah of all time, the Son of the living God, if you and I really believe Jesus is who he says he is, then does he, does he not deserve our total adoration, our longing to be filled with more of Jesus? Doesn't he deserve more than just church attendance? So some of us maybe need to stop being a Christian and actually start being a disciple. The gospel is very simple as this. We couldn't save ourselves. So God stepped out of heaven and took on the form of man. And Jesus lived the perfect sinless life and gave his life for us. 
died the death that you and I should have died. So that if we put our faith and trust in him and give our life to Jesus, repent from who we were and turn towards Jesus, that we can have eternal life. And not just that, but a new life. And I don't care what prayer you prayed. I don't care what kind of family you grew up in. The question is always, have you become his disciple? Have you received him and surrendered your will to him? And the question is, the next question is, if your answer is yes, the next question is, are you engaging in the mission then of being a disciple? The call to follow Jesus and the call to make disciples is one and the same. Let me leave you with this, and we're going to finish up with this right here. Jesus benchmarked his ministry with three different sayings. He started his ministry by saying, come and see. Come check this out. About midway through his ministry, he started using the phrase, come and die. And not like, come kill yourself, but die to yourself. Say, it's not about me, it's about, it's about God. And so I'm going to put myself aside and be consumed with Jesus. So he started off by saying, come and see. Then he says, come and die. And for those that came and died, then he said this when he left, now go and tell. Come and see, come and die, now go and tell. And some of us this morning, we're still stuck in the come and see part. We're still stuck in the, wow, this is awesome, and God is so awesome, and he is awesome, and he is amazing. But some of us have been stuck there for years, and we haven't done the last part, which is go and tell. And we not, we're not going and telling because some of us really haven't died to ourselves. It's still about us. It's still about our, it's still about our comfort and our success, and it's still about our family, and it's about our friends. And Jesus like, but well, you're stuck because a disciple makes disciples Found people, find people. Saved people, save people. Loved people, love people. So are you really a disciple? My prayer is that yes, we all are. Maybe some of us are just stuck in some area. Then today, let's start going and telling. Who's your one? Maybe this morning while I was talking, God laid someone on your heart. Maybe it's the person you buy coffee from. Maybe it's the person, your favorite restaurant you go to. Maybe it's your neighbor or your coworker. Here's what I want you to do. In the margin of your Bible, if you have your Bibles open, right there in Matthew chapter 4 where he says, follow me, I want you to write their name in the margin. Pray for them. Ask God to open those doors of opportunity so you can show love to them. You can show Jesus to them. If you don't write down, it's not going to happen. You don't, if, you don't, if you don't really keep yourself accountable, it's not going to happen. It's just another sermon on another Sunday. But are we going to be Christians, Morningstar, or are we going to be disciples? Because disciples make disciples. I'm done being just the ordinary Christian. It's time for all of us, including me, to step up and go and tell. So where are you at? Let me have you bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment this morning. Our band's going to come, and they're gonna, we're going to have a time of response. We're going to have a time of worship. And here's the deal. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what season of life you're in. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what your family's going through. I don't know what area you might be stuck in. I don't know. Maybe you're stuck in the come and see part. Maybe you're struggling with, I don't know if I can really give up my life to, to share my faith. Can I just tell you this morning, I'm praying for you. And I love you. I, listen, my heart breaks for Christians and believers who go their whole life just having the title Christian and not really living it because you're missing out. Jesus was a lot more straightforward in his responses than what you might hear sometimes from people. 
who just want to talk about how Jesus was all loving, and, and he was. And Jesus only said easy, good things. And he said a lot of easy, good things, but Jesus said a lot of hard things. And one of them was, prove you're my disciple. He says, the world's going to know you're my disciple for the love you have for them. And the love we should have for them is the same love that Jesus had for them, which means I'm going to lay my life down. I'm going to give up myself to go win them. I'm going to give up myself to go give them the gospel. So maybe you're here this morning and you're stuck. You're like, man, I just, I can't. Maybe your confidence is shaken. Maybe you tried it once. You're like, it did not turn out well. Listen, it's not about you. It's all about what Jesus is going to do through you. And you can't control how they respond, but we can control our obedience. And the command that my Savior gave me and the command that your Savior gave you is to go and tell. Go and tell. So this morning, in just a moment, we're going to pray. And I'm going to invite you this morning. Maybe God has worked in your heart this morning like he's worked in mine. Maybe God has stirred. Maybe God has put the name or faces of people in your mind right now, even as we've gone through this. Who's your one? Who are you going to go and start going and telling to? Then this morning, will you give that to him? We can have immediate obedience this morning and say, God, I'm going to respond in my own heart to what have you moved in my life. Then do that. Maybe you want to come forward when we start singing and just get down on your knees and say, God, whoever that is you laid on my heart, God, give me an opportunity to share and go and tell them. Maybe God's moved your heart that, man, I'm just guilty of just being a Christian and not really being a disciple. Maybe this morning God's just really burdened you with, I want the dust of my rabbi all over me. I want to be so close to Jesus that I look just like him, that I talk just like him, that I love just like him. Maybe some of us kind of gone through life and we're trying to shake off some of the dust of Jesus because it kind of gets uncomfortable over, after a while. I don't know how God's dealt with you. Maybe this morning you've never given your life to Jesus. I would love to introduce you to the Savior today. And it's all about asking him to forgive you because he died for it, he paid for it. And turning away from that and putting your faith and trust in Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection asking him to save and rescue you. This morning, if you'd like to do that, I would love to talk to you about that. But I don't know how God's dealt with you. So you respond how God leads you to respond, right there at your seat or down here in the front. But the worst thing we can do today is not respond at all. Are you a disciple or are you a Christian? Dear Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for who you are, for the blood that you shed for us for the love that you've shown to us. And I pray this morning that as your word is spoken today, that follow me, that still rings and it echoes 2,000 years later and, it, and it's, it's bouncing off the walls of our heart. That some of us this morning might be feeling some conviction, some tugging in our heart to, to be more like you. Maybe some of this morning, God, that you've talked to, that you've, you've dealt with this morning, they're stuck. God, break them free today. And for the names and the faces that you've brought to our attention right now, God, I pray that you will give us that burden to continue to pray for them, to start those conversations, and to speak your amazing message of hope to them for your glory. So God, give us the courage to respond however you choose for us to respond this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with me in worship this morning? Thank you for listening to today's message. If you have any questions, about Morningstar Baptist Church or today's message, visit MorningstarDayton.org and choose Contact Us.